Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Let's start in verse 12 and read through verse 17 for some context and ask the Lord for his blessing on his precious word. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by, which we, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, again, we come before you mindful that without you we can do nothing, nothing of spiritual value. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us as we read and um, meditate on your word, this wonderful text. Lord, open it to our understanding and change us from within. Help us, Father. We are your people. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light that we might walk with you, that we might commune with you, and that we might be an example to the world of the glory of God. We can't do that, Lord, unless you help us. And we depend on you knowing that you will. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been learning quite a bit, I would say, about the work of the glorious Holy Spirit of God in this eighth chapter of Romans. A work that unites us with the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work at Calvary and also with the eternal purpose and plan of God to redeem us even before anything existed. The Spirit of God is He who in space and time applies that redemption to the hearts of God's people to bring us to know and understand more and more fully what He has done for us in rescuing our souls. We've learned how the Spirit of God is the power of God to rescue us from the dominating power of sin and death which used to hold sway over every one of us before we came to Christ. He is a, the greater power who has delivered us by bringing us to life by sending His Son to stand in our place as a condemned criminal, formed and fashioned like a man, yet without sin, fully qualified to take on the sins of his people. And he did, by God's grace, condemn, condemning sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us, brothers and sisters, who don't walk according to the flesh anymore, that is to say, after the standard of the flesh, the lust and desire of the flesh, as the pattern of our lives, we are no longer in bondage to the desires of the flesh. We now have a new set of desires that the Lord has given us in this new heart He's given us. 
so that we want to serve Him. We want to honor Him with lives of holiness. And He Himself enables us to do that. He, in fact, is producing His own holy character in each of us. That is the righteousness of the law that is being filled up in us progressively. We saw also that uh, the, the Spirit Himself is the one responsible for directing our thoughts upward to the Lord, to cause us to set our minds on things above in heaven, in fact, where Christ is. He is the one who has changed our desires so that we are no longer enemies of God, warring against God, but we are now subject to the law of God and we love to be subject. In fact, our desire in our innermost man is to keep the law of God 100%, and we're frustrated that we can't because of this body of death that still clings to us. But we are encouraged by the Apostle's letter here because he's teaching us that though we are dead in the flesh, that is, because we are as good as dead in the body, corrupted by sin, decaying on our way to die, and that our bodies are under the sentence of death and will be until we die, but our spirits have been brought to life. We've been made alive in Christ. We are not the people we used to be. We are those now who have been raised by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is he who is giving life to our mortal bodies. He has done that in our regeneration, bringing us to life. He is doing that now in our sanctification as he separates us more and more from our sin, making, making us more like Christ. And he will do it at the end when he glorifies our bodies and gives us bodies that are like the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection body. His work, his power is active in each of us who are in Christ, who are in the Spirit, who are not walking according to the flesh any longer, but according to the Spirit. And so he's made this, this great argument, and he's saying, look, if you understand these things, you understand that we are debtors not to live for the flesh anymore. You, you owe nothing to the flesh anymore. The flesh and the sin that dwells in your flesh only brought you death. Now we live according to the Spirit. Now we live according to the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, he said in verse 13 that that involves killing the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the body. That's actively, continuously. That is how we walk in the Spirit and how we don't walk according to the flesh any longer. We set our minds on things above. We give ourselves wholly to the Lord every day. And he says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So last week we looked at that verse and we, we looked at a couple of aspects of that, which I'm going to refresh a little bit today as we continue on. But today we come to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so for today we really want to ask three questions. These, these will be the outline for today. The first is, what is this spirit of bondage? What does that mean? The second question is, what is the spirit of adoption he speaks of? And thirdly, how do we know that we have this spirit of adoption? How does he evidence himself? How does he work? So we'll take those in turn as we come through the text together and ask for the Lord's grace to teach us his truth. 
So firstly, what does Paul mean by this spirit of bondage? You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. So clearly he's making a contrast here, a comparison. And when he speaks of the spirit of bondage, the question is, is he speaking of a general feeling of bondage, in which case spirit would be understood with a lowercase s? Or is he referring to the Holy Spirit, capital S, who would be the Holy Spirit or the spirit of bondage? And if the latter, how is it that the Holy Spirit could ever be a spirit of bondage or a spirit of slavery? That seems strange. Well, if you look at the Greek itself, it's, it's unclear from the word because there's no definite article given. He doesn't say, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage. In the Greek, he just says, you did not receive spirit of bondage. So that's why it's been understood both ways, mostly in the former way, in the lowercase s way, that it is a, a feeling of bondage, a feeling of slavery to a fear. And the question would be, well, a fear of what? Hebrews chapter 2 answers this question, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, referring to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So this is the connection, the, the fear that all men have all their lifetime is a fear of death. And the author of the Hebrews says that it's a bondage. They are bound to this fear. They can't shake it. They can't get away from it. They're slaves to this fear of death. Bildad in the book of Job in chapter 18 refers to death as the king of terrors. And he speaks of Job being paraded before the king of terrors in his condition, his pitiable condition, where he was so afflicted in his body, he had essentially a sentence of death on his head. But then we read in other texts like Psalm chapter 73, something different about the wicked and their view of death or their feeling as they, even as they approach death. Listen to Psalm chapter 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, but to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs, no pains in their death, but their strength in, is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment, and so on. This text seems to tell us that, really, the wicked go down to their grave without any concern. They're, they're at ease. They're not in trouble as other men. They're, they're not in pains at their death. But they enter into death feeling that all is well. In Job chapter 21, verse 23, Job himself testifying says, One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. And then as we think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in 
Luke chapter 16, we have a, a picture of a rich man who goes down to the grave wealthy, well-dressed, well-fed, and uncompassionate as he knows the beggar Lazarus sits at the gate with his sores, the dogs of the city coming and licking his wounds. He has no sense, this rich man, that he is about to be tormented in hell until he is in hell in torments. And it's then that he has this sense of bondage, this sense of slavery to a fear that causes him to cry out. But alas, it's too late and there is no help for him at that point. The chasm is too wide for him to cross over to Abraham and vice versa to him. Paul himself in his testimony in Romans 7 said that he felt alive once apart from the law. Remember that? He felt alive. He, he was self-satisfied, self-righteous, um, thought he was keeping the law, zealous for God's law, blameless in the law in his eyes. And yet we have these accounts in the New Testament of Nicodemus, for example, the teacher of Israel who comes to Jesus for a private meeting at night because he wants to understand how he can enter the kingdom of God, even though he doesn't state the question explicitly. The Lord Jesus reads his heart. And we have the account of the rich young ruler who, when he encountered Jesus, stated that he kept the law from his youth up. What did he still lack? And yet, he comes to the Lord Jesus asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. What is happening here? Is man in Fear of death, is he in bondage to death all his lifetime or not? Well, how would, it, how would we explain this from the Scripture? God has given us a conscience to every man so that we know that he exists and that we know what is right and what is wrong, what he approves of and what he does not approve of. And when we sin, the conscience functions like an alarm system, testifying against us that we have crossed the line. All men have this conscience, regardless of whether they know about the law of God that's written in this scripture, these scriptures. They have the law of God that's written on their hearts, so they know. And the knowledge brings an, a fear, a fear of death. But men suppress the truth, don't they? That's where we started in Romans chapter 1. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to put God out of their minds and out of their lives. And so they turn their backs on Him and they turn up the volume on every other sound and noise that they possibly can to drown out the sound of the conscience that God has given them. And though they do everything they can to silence that conscience, yet it still testifies against them and accuses them. And so my question is, is that what Paul has in mind in Romans 8.15? when he speaks of this bondage, this spirit of bondage to fear? Well, I think perhaps, perhaps. But I also think that Paul may be pointing out something additional here that is unique to the children of God. This is not something that applies to everyone universally in the world. But this is something unique to the children of God, to those who are led by the Spirit. Remember, not everyone is led by the Spirit of God. Only those who have the Spirit of God are led by the Spirit of God. 
I think we have to remember our context here. Our context here is helpful because he's talking about the leading of the Spirit. That is the focus. And so what he does in verse 15 here is going to be an explanation of what it means that the Spirit leads. We know that because he starts verse 15 with the word for, which is an explanation of what came immediately prior. And as you'll recall from last week, or may recall if you were with us, we talked about where the Spirit leads us, is that, that there is a pattern in all of our lives where He leads. Not necessarily with regard to life decisions like your job and your city you're going to live in, the person you're going to marry, but more broadly, that He leads us down first by humbling us before He lifts us up and exalts us in His time by showing us His salvation. We saw last week in Isaiah chapter 40 that it is the Lord who brings down the hills and the mountains which represent the pride of man, the arrogance of man, the glory of man as he sees it, as man sees it. God brings that pride down, how? By blowing on the field of his grass and his flower. He causes men to see that all his glory is really faded. Because God has blown upon it. He's caused their beautiful grass and their beautiful flower to fade and ultimately to die. How? By the breath of God, by His Word. His Word is what teaches men. It is the light of truth that exposes the holiness of God to the sinfulness of the human heart. He shows us that all our glory as we saw it is but a wilderness. It's a wasteland of death. He teaches us that we are not only sinners, but that we are slaves to sin. That we're under a sentence of condemnation for having sinned against a holy God who created us not for our own glory, but for His glory. To live not for ourselves, but for Him. Now, people I think, have no problem acknowledging that they're sinners. They'll readily admit that they are not perfect, that they've made mistakes, that they sin even, if they choose that word. But their point of comparison is always a horizontal one, isn't it? Comparing themselves with others to say, I'm not as bad as this other person. I could be much worse. And somehow, as if somehow that gives justification or standing with God, where they think that God perhaps will excuse their sin because they're pretty good people after all. But people are not really bothered by their sin in and of themselves. They may think about it for a while, but then they turn their attention to other things and they quickly forget the conviction that they may have had if it's not from the Spirit of God. See, they think that they're still in control. People like to be in control. They, they don't believe that they're dominated by sin. They don't believe that sin is like a harsh taskmaster that is actively whipping them and killing them or slaying them, murdering them, like Paul said in his own testimony in Romans chapter 7. The Spirit of God shows the children of God the truth that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that if we stay in that condition, we are prepared for an eternity, eternity of death, which is hell. A separation from God with a torment from God that never, ever lets up. And that, brothers and sisters, is what brings the fear of death 
to a crescendo in the heart of the child of God. That's something that only we experience. That's not something that the world ever experiences. What I'm arguing here is that the Lord himself sends the Spirit of God when he blows on our hearts, he first brings us down and humbles us. And part of that humiliation is that he gives us a spirit of bondage to the fear of death that we cannot ignore any longer. It's a desperation of soul that he is creating so that we cry out for deliverance. Lord, save me. And that is what makes room for the glory of God to be seen by us. We first have to be brought low to see our sinfulness, to mourn it. And that's a, a work that the Spirit of God, through His Word, does. This is all part of, that, part of that preparatory work of the schoolmaster before He brings us to Christ. Jesus Himself said that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world or convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's a fear of judgment. It's a fear of death that He brings to the heart of an individual. Now, it's important to say, I think, that not everyone has the exact same experience of this fear of death. Um, we vary in our experiences, both in terms of intensity and in terms of duration. If you look at someone like John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was under this conviction of the Spirit, this bondage to the fear of death for about a year and a half. That's a long time before the Lord finally gave him relief. And I think that's why in his allegory, Christian, the pilgrim, was carrying his burden for so long before he finally dropped it. That was John Bunyan's particular experience. That may not be your experience. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you know something of this. The Spirit of God first humbles us and brings us low. He gives us the spirit of bondage to the fear of death before he releases us and shows us his glory to heal us. I want to read a text for you from Jeremiah chapter 4, if you want to turn with me there as well. Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah being a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel, to Judah, um, in the 7th century B.C., he was a prophet who uh, was anticipating the exile of Israel, of Judah, uh, to Babylon. And we have in Jeremiah chapter 4, starting in verse um, 19, Jeremiah's own um, heart that he's pouring out as he's anticipating the invasion of Babylon and the destruction of the people of Judah. And, and I want to I use this as a, an illustration of this idea of the bondage to the fear of death. Jeremiah 4, 19, O oh my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace. Because you have heard, O oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? As of the time that he wrote this, 
the destruction hadn't happened yet. The invasion hadn't happened yet. This is all anticipating what is going to happen. But he hears this warning in his soul, and it shatters him. He is pained in his heart and in his soul. He hears the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. He sees the standard, the, the flag, the banner that's raised that war is coming. Verse 22, for my people are foolish. They have not known me, the Lord speaking. They are silly children and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth and indeed it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains and indeed they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness. And all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate. Yet I will not make a full end. Jeremiah has something of the experience of Mount Sinai when the Lord came down, um, when he brought Israel to the foot of the mountain and he, the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in smoke. The whole mountain was in smoke, fire, um, heavy, thick cloud. There was a trumpet blast, many trumpet blasts. There was an earthquake, the mountain quaked. Um, lightning and thunder. It was a fearful sight when the Lord came down because of the holiness of God in the presence of a sinful people. And the people saw it. And they cried out to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but don't let God speak with us lest we die. They recognized the holiness of God. They recognized the, the fear of God. Jeremiah had something of that fear in his heart here as he anticipated the wrath of God coming with the Babylonian army. I think that's the testimony that we see really throughout Scripture, isn't it? Of God bringing the sinner to an awareness that he is in peril, an eternal peril. I mean, when we look at Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost or at Pentecost, he preaches to the Jews and he says, it was you who crucified the Lord. Yes, he was foreordained by the Lord, but you crucified him by your wicked hands. And when they heard that truth, they were pricked in the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they cried out, what shall we do to be saved? Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the testimony of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 when he heard the word of God followed by the accompanying sign of the earthquake, he was terrified as well, not because of the earthquake, but because of this word that had come to him. Saul, who later became Paul, when we read about his conversion testimony, the Lord knocked him off of his animal, his horse, with a blinding light. And he revealed himself to Saul as the one whom Paul, Saul, was persecuting directly. And when Saul heard those words, he trembled, the text says. And he was astonished. It's a weak word, actually. He was terrified out of his mind. The fear of death came upon him suddenly. So what are we saying? All people are in bondage 
to a fear of death all their lifetimes. That's true universally for all mankind, but all men suppress it to some degree or another. They're not bothered by it ultimately, and they may even go down to their graves feeling at ease. But for God's children, when he moves on the hearts of his children, he sends a spirit of bondage to the fear of death that we cannot ignore, but he does that in order that he would reveal his glory, that he would point us to the Savior who can heal us spiritually. Now, we come back to Romans 8 and verse 15, and Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. I want to highlight again here. He's not saying that the Spirit of God is like a, an oscillating wave that just goes up and down, up and down with regard to this fear of death. This is something that he brings us to, but then he now points us in another direction. He first brings us down, and now he brings us up. Yes, you did receive that spirit of bondage to fear death for a time when he humbled you, but you've not received that spirit again. In fact, what spirit have we received now? Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, we haven't received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. He's brought us to our senses, spiritually speaking. He's not leading us into the fear of death or condemnation anymore. So really, you see what he's doing is he's emphasizing his point from verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's reiterating the same point here. You've not been given a spirit of fear leading to death. A a spirit of condemnation. He's not giving you that spirit anymore. He did previously. But now, what does he say? He says, you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So, First question was, what is the spirit of bondage? I believe it's the Holy Spirit of God who creates that spirit, that feeling of bondage in the heart that we can't ignore until he shows us the remedy in Christ. And then secondly, the spirit of adoption. What is the spirit of adoption now? Well, I think to answer that question, we have to understand something about adoption. Adoption, as a word, is the word is actually a compound word. It means the placing of of sons, or the, to set in place as a son. That's what the word for adoption is in the Greek. Or you could say it means the establishing of a son. He's talking about a legal act where a son who is not naturally born to you can be declared your lawful son with all the rights and privileges that a son would have as a native-born son. That was not a new idea in Paul's day. In fact, Paul lived in a culture of the Greeks and the Romans where adoption was commonplace. It was well known. It was widely practiced. And it was, as I say, a legal act where you could place a son in your family who was not natively born to you so that he was a son in every respect. Now, what's interesting about this that I learned as I was studying this week is the focus of adoption in the Greek-Roman world was the welfare of the adoptive parent, not the welfare of the child. They didn't just go out and pick children off the street because they felt compassion for them and they wanted to bring them into their home. 
Rather, they had a motive, and the motive was that they wanted to preserve their family line, and they wanted somebody to care for themselves in old age. So oftentimes, the adoptive process was paired with the making of a will. This new adopted son would be one who has the checkbook, so to speak, so that he could write checks for the parent when the parent was old. He would take care of the family. He would take care of the property, the land that the family had, and it was a way for the adoptive parent to preserve his family line ultimately. I also learned that in ancient Greek culture, there were some additional constraints about this adoptive process. The adoptee was not able to be somebody not Greek. He couldn't be from another country. He had to have a legitimate Greek descent. He also had to be a he. He couldn't be a she. Adopted children were only males. So that was the cultural context of adoption that Paul lived in, but that was a very different understanding of adoption than Paul had and that the Lord has for us this morning. Paul's understanding of adoption was actually based on a precedent that was established in the Old Testament. Now, what I found interesting when I looked at this word for adoption, and you, if you look at it in the Old Testament, you won't find it anywhere. It's not mentioned even once. In fact, there was not even a, a legal system in place, an institution for the adopted, adoption process among the Hebrews. And the commentators give several reasons why adoption was rarely seen in the Old Testament. God had made provisions for his people to provide for them. That's a little redundant. But God had always provided for his people. And he, he had um, uh, things in place so that he would ultimately provide for his people. For example, leveret marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, you have a case of a husband and a wife where the husband dies and the couple have no child. And the brother of that deceased man is able to take the deceased wife, his widow, and raise up children to that deceased husband. That was called leveret marriage. So that was a way that God provided for Israel that they would be able to maintain their family line, to be able to maintain their tribes, to be able to maintain their land. He also made provisions for the land to be maintained within the family in perpetuity, ultimately. We read about the right of redemption by a relative, where if a person, for example, was too poor and they had to sell off their property, God didn't allow that individual to ultimately sell the land in perpetuity, but that that land would have to be released back to the original family after a period of time. It was called jubilee. Every 50 years, the land was restored to the original owners of the land as God had allotted the land. So ultimately, Adoption was not a needed process in the Old Testament. This is the key point, I think. It wasn't a needed process because God was the provision for his people. He provided for his people through his own means, and he didn't need others to help with that. So there's no legal, official legal institution for adoption in the Old Testament, but the spirit of adoption is very much there in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples to consider this because this is really the spirit of adoption that Paul has in mind when we come to our text in Romans 8. Moses, for example. When you think about Moses, 
he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, wasn't he? In Exodus chapter 2, we read about the Pharaoh who had issued a decree to kill all the male babies in the land because he was trying to suppress the Hebrew population. And his plan for hard bondage for the people was not working as he had hoped. They were still continuing to multiply. So he issues a a decree that all the baby boys be put to death. Moses' mother, Jochebed, she takes her son, who's described as a beautiful baby, puts him inside a basket, an ark, places him in the river by the reeds, effectively as an orphan, without parents. She sends him off because if she and her husband keep this baby anymore, uh, he's going to die. So she sends him off effectively as an orphan where he is found by Pharaoh's daughter and by her maidservants. And we have in Exodus 2.10, And the child grew, and she, that's Moses' mother, brought him, Moses, to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Why did the Pharaoh's daughter choose Moses? No other reason is given other than she had compassion on this child when she saw him. He was beautiful, and she had compassion when he cried. Her heart was stirred toward him. Mordecai, when we get to the book of Esther, we're told that Mordecai brought up his cousin Esther as his own daughter. In Esther chapter 2, verse 7, we read, And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And why did Mordecai take Esther? Because he had compassion on her that her parents died. And she becomes his daughter because he chose to take her as his own daughter. Then we hear about Israel. And Israel enslaved in the land of Egypt. And so God sends Moses as the deliverer, the redeemer. And when he does that, God calls Israel as a nation his son. Listen to Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, Indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, Israel was not God's natural-born son. God only has one son, and he is described as the eternal son who had no beginning. He had no birth in the first place. He always was. He's the eternal word. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he took on flesh and became a man in this world and so had an earthly birth in his humanity. But he chose, God chose to call Israel, the nation, his son, though they were not his natural son. So what is this? This is another picture of adoption. God calling Israel his son. And he does so by his sovereign choice. He chose to call them his son. He didn't have to. Ezekiel chapter 16 gives a wonderful allegory of Israel and Jerusalem specifically as a baby, a baby girl, in fact, who grows to become 
a beautiful woman because of the grace of God. Listen to how this reads just a a little bit of Ezekiel chapter 16. The word of the Lord, again, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now, that might sound offensive to a Jew who hated um, the pagan nations, but God is reminding Israel, your origin in Jerusalem was Canaanite territory. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. You were pagans from your origin. Verse 4, as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed, that is, hated, on the day you were born. This is a picture of a baby cast into an open field to die, which would have been a common practice for unwanted children in this day, in Ezekiel's day. And no one is taking pity on this child. But look at verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, Indeed, your time was the time of love, so I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. And then he goes on to describe how he washes her and he clothes her and he adorns her so that she becomes beautiful. Beautiful. God took pity on Israel as a nation. He did not behold them as a beautiful baby like Pharaoh's daughter saw Moses was. This was a a bloody baby, a child that was not cared for, left out in the field to die. And the Lord alone took pity and had compassion on her and healed her with his word. He said to her, live. And she lived. And she grew and he eventually takes her to be his own wife. And he enters into covenant with her. This is the picture of adoption, brothers and sisters, that we have to keep in mind. This is the spirit of adoption that is given to us in the Old Testament. God chooses Israel not because of anything desirable in themselves. They weren't desirable. They were pagan. They were cast out. They were ignored by everybody. But God set his love on them. Deuteronomy 7, 7, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God redeem them? Why did he care for them? Why did he adopt them as his own? Because he loved them. Not because of anything in in themselves, but because of God's love. And because he would keep his eternal oath, his promise to himself. 
which he then repeated to the patriarchs. So this adoption idea is really one of a relationship of grace and grace alone, of mercy, of compassion and kindness that God grants. He gives to his people. God is often described as the father of the fatherless, isn't he, in the Old Testament? He has a special heart for the fatherless and for widows and for strangers, sojourners, because all of them represent us. Listen to the fatherless, um, some of these fatherless texts. David in Psalm 27, verse 9, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. It's a wonderful picture of adoption. David again in Psalm 68, verse 5, A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God is the father of the fatherless. He's described as the helper of the fatherless. Hosea in chapter 14, verse 3 says, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. So there's the recurring theme in the Old Testament with regard to adoption. It's not a formal institution to provide for anybody's needs. God is sufficient for his people at all times. But it is always a relationship of grace that one demonstrates for another, in, in the cases we looked at, the adoptive parent for the adopted, the adoptee. And it's a sovereign choice. On no other basis other than the heart of the individual, the adoptive parent was stirred with compassion for that other to take them in. That's the heart of our God, loved ones. He loves to adopt his children, not because he needs anything. Our God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He has always been in perfect fellowship with Himself, joy with Himself, worshiping Himself, loving Himself above all. That's before anything was even created. So He never needed anything. The fact that He brings adopted children to Himself is an act of grace because He is a, a loving God. His heart is for his people, to bring them into fellowship with himself so that they would enjoy the same fellowship. And he does not impose the limitations that the Greeks imposed of a particular ethnicity, being Greek, or a particular gender, you had to be male. No, our God says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and end of the earth, sons and daughters, male and female, not just from ethnic Israel, but from the ends of the earth. Bring them to me. He calls them. He calls us. And so when we come to the New Testament and to Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul really picks up on the same theme of adoption as a pure act of sovereign grace. God's election and pure grace. That's really the key to this spirit of adoption that we're talking about today. I want to read Ephesians chapter 1 with you. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. This is territory that Pastor Stan has taken us through in a wonderful series in Ephesians. 
Um, but just a little bit here in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now notice verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. There's a lot there. But what do we see? We see that God the Father chose us. He elected us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us. That is, he marked us out. It's the word that describes a horizon where there's a definitive line demarcating the sky from the land. He marked us out like a horizon for adoption. For adoption. When? Before anything even existed. Do you see how glorious this is? This is all grace, loved ones. Our adoption started in eternity, is what he's saying, in the mind of God. And then, verse 5, by Jesus Christ to himself. Predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. That's in space and time. When Christ came to lay down his life for us and to redeem us, that's when we were adopted. That's when adopted. That's when the in the decree of God from eternity was actually carried out in space and time. And then he says, here's the motive. God's motive, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, that's a word for the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Adoption is a work of grace from eternity that he brings to pass in space and time through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians, back up one page to Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> this is our call to worship this morning. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, when he speaks of children here and child, he's speaking of an infant. He's speaking of one who is an heir. He doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. He is an inheritor to be, but he's still an infant. And he says, even when we were children, infants, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. And he describes that in verse 9. He says, but now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? This bondage is a following of the letter of the law while totally missing the spirit of the law. It's a bondage that the Galatians had put themselves under where they were looking to the ceremonies and the rituals of the Old Testament as if they were the ultimate reality rather than the signs, the types and the shadows that pointed them to the ultimate reality being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he says, we were like that as infants. We were under um, the elements of the world in bondage to them. We were seeking our righteousness through keeping the law and through the ceremonies and rituals, which is foolishness. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, 
born under the law. That's important, that phrase. Why? Because he says to redeem those who were under the law. He sent his son born under the law to redeem us under the law. We who were in bondage to the law to keep it, to fulfill it for righteousness, we couldn't. The law was actually a curse to us because of our own sinfulness. No matter how much we tried, we couldn't keep the law. So God sent his son to keep the law for us by living a perfect life. And then by becoming a curse for us on the cross, taking our sin upon himself and in exchange, giving us his perfect righteousness. That's our justification. That's all an act of grace, isn't it? And all of this is for this purpose. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive, here it is, the adoption as sons. This is an act of grace of God that he would send his son to stand in our place that we would receive his righteousness and he would take our filth so that we would be cleansed and forgiven of our sins so that we would no longer be infants but now we are treated as adults. Sons, no longer slaves, but sons who are full inheritors of God. What does that mean? We get eternal life. We get God himself who is the source of all life. I love um, in verse 5 here, the word for receive that he uses is actually not receive as you might think. He says, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. The word that he uses there is that we might take back again the adoption of sons. That we might take back again something that we had previously. Pastor Stan um, did a really good job um, expositing the text from Ephesians 1, which says something very similar. The consummation, the summation of all things, the um, restoration to a harmony that we once had when? Before the fall. Before the fall, when we were in the garden with the Lord, communing with him in perfect fellowship, we had sonship at that time in Adam, before the fall. God is now restoring to us that great privilege of sonship in Jesus Christ, but we are in a better position, a superior position than Adam was in the garden because Adam had not achieved righteousness. He was under probation to achieve righteousness by obedience. He failed. Israel as a nation failed as a son. King David and all the kings failed as sons. Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords and the true eternal Son never failed. He succeeded everywhere they failed. And He now brings us back into fellowship with His righteousness. He brings us back into the garden with the righteousness of God on us. We are in a superior position to Adam. So all of this, I hope you see, is the spirit of adoption. It it is a pure grace of God that we should be treated as sons, though we deserve to be left to die in the field as that baby was. John chapter 1, the introduction of John's gospel 
puts this so wonderfully. Now, John doesn't use the word adoption. Paul is the only one who uses that word for adoption in the New Testament, but the concept is still here in a few places. And John 1 is a wonderful place. Listen to this. John 1, verse 11. He, referring to the word, Jesus Christ, who came into the world, he came to his own, that is, to the domain of mankind, and his own, that is, his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he, God, gave the right. That word is the word for power. It's the word for authority. It's the word for privilege. He gave the right, the power, to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Here's a picture of adoption. God the Father gives the legal standing of sons. To who? To whom? To those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is this eternal word. And some people read this verse and they say, well, if you accept the Lord Jesus, then you will become children of God, as if that is the order of operations. But actually, this is a descriptive statement, not a prescriptive statement. What I mean is, what he is saying is, as many as received the Lord, as many as believe on him, only those who are sons to begin with can believe on him. He has to give you the right, the authority to be a son first, and then you will believe on his name. You will recognize Jesus as your older brother, as part of the family, when you yourself are a child. But until then, you will not. And he explains the same thing, the same concept that it's God who makes us children and not we ourselves in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, that is to say it's not your parents that cause you to be saved, nor of the will of the flesh, it's not you that can will to be saved, nor of the will of man, nor can anyone else will that you be saved ultimately, but of God. You were born of God. So here we have both concepts, the adoption, he gave us the right, the authority, the legal standing to be sons, and he gave us regeneration. He rebirthed us by himself through his word, the incorruptible seed that lives and abides forever. Both of these concepts are critical to understanding our position with the Lord we are adopted, which gives us legal standing, title, and rights with God. And we are regenerated, born again. That gives us the nature of God. You see, you can adopt a child into your family, but you can't control his heart or her heart, can you? But when the Lord adopts, he gives us a new heart. He gives us a new nature so that we want to obey him and follow him and delight in him. We now love righteousness and we hate our sin, don't we? You see, he's given us the whole package that we need for salvation. We were condemned in Adam. We lost our standing as sons. God is now restoring us completely. He's not only made us right in his sight by giving us the righteousness of Jesus, but he's restored our sonship. He's restored our standing with him so it's permanent. It will never go away. What is the spirit of adoption? I believe Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit himself. 
The Holy Spirit himself is the spirit of adoption who causes us to become sons and then who leads us as sons, becoming conformed more and more to the image of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our glory. He, the Spirit, is working out the Spirit, lowercase s, of adoption in our hearts. You see? He's working that out in us by bringing us to an understanding that God has sovereignly chosen you through no goodness of your own that you are able to commend yourself with to God. He's chosen you despite yourself because he simply had compassion on you, because his heart was stirred toward you, and because he would fulfill the promise that he made in eternity to himself to redeem his people. God does not need anything as the adoptive parent. He simply is setting his love on us, graciously sending his son to rescue us, turning us from being slaves of sin to being sons who are free from the power of sin with all the family rights and privileges. I want to close with Hosea chapter 11, which was our corporate reading this morning. And as I read Hosea 11, I want you to think and hear the heart of our adoptive father. Think about and hear this, uh, this heart of God as an adoptive father, the spirit of adoption here in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea writing um, 100 years before Jeremiah he, he's one of the two writers that writes from the northern kingdom of Israel. And you'll see the word Ephraim come up in here. Ephraim is one of the predominant tribes in the north. And so Ephraim is often understood as the north in Israel. They're uh, synonymous with Israel as a nation. So, Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son Uh, My text in the New King James is a little confusing where it says, as they called them, so they went from them. Actually, I believe what he's saying here is, just as I called them, God speaking to his son, the nation of Israel, so they went from my face. They departed from me. They sacrificed the Baals and burned incense to carved images. That's provoking God. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. This is the picture of a father tenderly teaching his child to walk as he toddles. This is a picture of God leading his people through the wilderness. But they did not know that I healed them. That is so important, loved ones. God delivered them from Egypt. He called them out. He he already brought them out of the bondage. But they didn't know it, that they were truly delivered. They they saw the physical act that he brought them out of Egypt, but they didn't know that that was really a symbol pointing to their need to be brought out of spiritual Egypt, bondage to sin. They didn't see that. They didn't know that he had healed them. Verse 4, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, He released them from bondage, like taking a yoke off of oxen and setting them free. I stooped and fed them. He gave them manna in the wilderness, didn't he? 
They called it manna because it meant what? What is this? We don't recognize this. This is a new food that God is providing for his people. Hmm. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king. This is a harsher judgment than returning to Egypt. The Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his, in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. They don't exalt the Lord in their hearts, though they may speak of him with their lips. And it sounds like the Lord is just going to destroy them. He's going to give them over to the Assyrians to be destroyed forever. But then he says in verse 8, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? These are the two cities of the plain of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah that were buried in sulfur. How can I ultimately destroy you like I did them? My heart churns within me, literally turning over inside of me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. God is not like a man. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't promise to keep his people and then get so angry with them because they constantly provoke him that he says, that's enough. I'm going to destroy you. He doesn't do that. His long-suffering is so much longer than our long-suffering. This is the heart of our God. He will not execute the fierceness of his anger. He's not going to bring full wrath on them. He is going to bring wrath on them when he exiles the ten northern tribes to Assyria and destroys many of them. But he will not ultimately destroy his people. He's going to preserve his remnant. I will not come into the city to ultimately destroy them in verse 9. Now verse 10, here's the promise. They shall walk after the Lord. Why? How is he going to guarantee that? He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. Then shall come trembling, they shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, that would be south like a dove from the land of Assyria, that would be north and east, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. God is going to guarantee that they come back. How? He's going to roar at them like a lion. He's going to wake them up in their souls like a lion would incite fear and terror in the heart of a person if you heard one roar at you. This is that spirit of bondage to fear that God will give his people. Notice, after he's already brought them out of Egypt. He's already delivered them. They were children. They were infants. But they didn't know that God had redeemed them. They, they couldn't see it because they hadn't been given eyes to see spiritually. So God is going to roar like a lion to cause them to fear. And then they'll call on the name of the Lord. And then they'll realize that when they came out of Egypt, that was a picture of their spiritual salvation. Chapter 14, and so wonderfully, ends this letter of Hosea so wonderfully. He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. 
For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. There's adoption. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel And he shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. That's the ultimate end for God's people. Though they be torn apart and afflicted grievously by the Lord, he will not ultimately destroy them. He does that in order to heal them, to heal us. Brothers and sisters, have you seen your sin and grieved over it? Have you seen that you are a slave to sin and called out on the Lord for mercy? If you haven't, ask him. Ask him to give you that sensibility to awaken awaken you from your spiritual slumber. Perhaps he's stirring in your heart this morning. This is the heart of our compassionate God. He is a loving, adoptive Father who will never leave us nor forsake us. More next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word, for your promises, Lord, which are exceedingly precious, exceedingly great, and which are able to make us partakers of the divine nature. Father, it's your word that both wounds us and heals us. Your word is a a powerful whirlwind that can bring desolation and devastation, but it's also a healing wind, a wind that blows on the hearts of your people calls them to life, causes them to wake up and to walk in your way. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for showing us something of your eternal purpose in Christ and that you have brought it to pass in full and that you are now working out in us that resurrection power that we might live an impossible life in the flesh, a life that's led by the Spirit a life that you yourself empower for the glory of God. Help us, we pray. Help us to walk in your way. Help us to delight in you. Help us, Lord, to love one another as you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.